Welcome to A Life Lived Backwards, One Man's Life, the accompanying podcast to Larry Rutman's memoir, A Life Lived Backwards, an existential triad of friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation. Hi there, I'm Jordan Rich with a pretty easy task and a fun one at that. I pose questions to Larry and with that razor sharp memory of his and a great talent for storytelling, well, you just have to settle back and enjoy the ride. Talk a little bit about childhood friendships and where those took you and where they may have ended up. Well, I will. A little more about Lois, though, that um, I just want to put in here. The whole first section of the book, a couple of thousand words, are about Lois and about our relationship and how it's changed over the years. It was dubious at first whether we'd be able to stick together, but then we have. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that um, I don't think either one of us, when we got married, I was like 30 two, and she was like 21, ever dreamed that we would be at the place we're at today, 57 years later, because we were only children. We were pretty spoiled, I guess, uh, if you want to look at it that way. And I think that the wonder, one of the wonders of our relationship is that we seem to be accepted um, almost immediately and spontaneously by other people, whether young or old. So that we have a whole collection of relationships with the families on either side are young families. And they, they call us grandpappy and grandmammy. And they love to come and play in the yard. And the first time one set of neighbors came, Lois gave, well, what happened is that um, she gave an old key that her father had brought back from one of the famous hotels in Rome where uh, I guess uh, the guy that used to be this is years ago, the head of uh, Argentina at the time. What was his name? Oh, um, Juan Perón? Yeah, but he was staying there with Evita. Uh, uh, Eva, Eva Perón. Eva yeah. Perón. Right. And uh, so this, this grand European key. So she gave it to the younger kid, Jules. And um, then uh, Lois thought that maybe the young girl in the family, um, Hannah, would be disappointed, so she goes upstairs and brings a beautiful pearl, uh, a, a yeah, a necklace with pearls, and gives it to to them. Well, these kids, now they come to the yard. They bring cards. We love you, blah blah blah, et cetera, et cetera. And um, and you know they're great kids. And uh, so, so that that's we never dreamed that um, we'd be so young, so old. Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, in a previous episode that we did together, you talked a little bit about kids and. Your your love of children and 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 the curiosity they have seems to be a good match. You and Lois, you both, despite not having children of your own, have a whole world full of kids apparently at your at your back door, looking to be connected. That's yeah. great. That's a wonderful gift. Yeah, right. And uh, you know we have great relationships with the parents and the children, but yeah. that's only part of it. And let's go. So the next subject you wanted to talk Well, about. I wanted to, to talk a little bit about your background because it, it is a life lived backwards after all. And and talk about your early days, as you mentioned, in summer camp and as a chapter in the book on that and also uh, school, uh, not not postgraduate and stuff, but early school. Because you, you grew up where? Let's tell everybody where if they're just listening for the first time. Well, I lived. I, I grew up on Gibbs Street in Brookline, which is a couple of blocks away from Braves Field where the Braves used to play before they went to Milwaukee, uh, Milwaukee in 1952. Sounds like a long time ago, but I can remember it very clearly. Sure. And um, we used to find ways to get into the ballpark. And when I say we, 
Yeah, I had the you know the in on well, my mother moved us from Winchester Street when I was about two, when she had me in Golden Curls uh, to Gibbs Street because they, I didn't have enough friends up on Winchester Street, which is close to Coolidge Corner. But down on Gibbs Street, there were a whole bunch of kids my age, and there I became a baseball player, and I got whacked a few times, and. Uh, you know, I grew up like a kid supposed were, to. Be. Were you a member of the Knothole Gang? Oh, well, I wasn't a member of the Knothole Gang, but we used to find a million ways to get into Bray's Field. You could turn styles. They let in kids. <laughs> they let in kids uh, who, uh, if their father brought them to ball game, so we used to go up to people and say, "Will you be my father today, so I can get into the game?" And, and in those days, not to date anybody here, but the the cost of admission was not what it is today. <laughs> no, it's probably like a few. It was probably less bucks. than a buck for the bleachers. Yeah. But that's a lot of money for us. Oh, sure. Absolutely. You know, I mean, Braze Field, so that uh, this isn't friendship, but one day at Braze Field in 1943, I think it was when I was 12, I always had chutzpah, and I always dared to dare. And I don't mean that the first part of my life up until age 70 uh, was, you know, may have been live, living backwards, but it wasn't living in, in, in isolation or in a dull way. So anyway, I walked into the, into the press box. And and sat down, and one of the guys, you know, probably, you know, a sports writer said, "Who's that kid? What's he doing here?" And but somehow they they accepted me, and said, "Hey, kid, do you want a ham and cheese sandwich?" <laughs> <laughs> so I said, "Sure." So <laughs> wow, that's pretty cool. Talking your way into the press box, or or sneaking into the press box, and either way, uh, those are things that aren't done anymore with all the security measures in place, but. You talk about the street you moved to because that is where the friends started to really blossom, right? That street as opposed to the first one. Yeah, we would play like punch ball in the backyard. Now, Marty Sackletter became a dentist. And uh, also later on, uh, he, I think he's forgotten it, but Casey Stingle walked out and he challenged Casey Stingle, who at that time was managing the Braves. That was before Casey Stingle won all those world championships as the manager of the Yankees. But one day, Marty, who was a great fielder and supposedly a light hitter, but we were punching a tennis ball, punched one my way, and I stuck up my hand, and I caught it in my hand. And the reason I remember that is I, I, I think I said to myself, hey, you can play this game. And I loved baseball. I loved hitting. And uh, Marty and I used to go to the old Devotion playground before they redid it, and we'd draw a box on the wall, and... Um, he would, you know, we'd pitch to each other. We'd have innings. And he wasn't as strong a hitter as I was. Sometimes I'd really get a hold of one and hit it onto the roof of the house across the street. But I used to come home, and that playground was dirty and dusty, and my mother would would go ballistic because she'd, she'd never seen a kid so dirty. Yeah, I had friends there. You mentioned um, you mentioned Camp. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Camp Bowercrest was the last camp— I was a camper at, and that was in like when I was like 15. There's a guy that is all that I knew at the time that I lived on Gibbs Street from early on. His name is Yale Altman. Yale is still with us today. Um, he was a great uh, player. He played for English High School, all star third baseman, uh, all city team. And um, so Yale was a great friend. And also, he the camp that I went to, Camp Bowcrest, was a Jewish-oriented camp. Before that, I went to a camp that was 
you know, everybody. And that was my first – Camp Wabisa, the name mm. of the camp was. And it was it was mostly the kids there were, were poor kids, Italians and whatever, from Revere because it was run by Max Friedman, who was a police officer from Revere. And when my parents left me there after my – I had been going to Camp Wingo – which was a you know a, a, a rich Jewish kids camp, which had all sorts of programs and a terrific location. But then my mother and father ran into difficult times financially, and um, so they they sent me to Camp Wabisa. And when I looked around Camp Wabisa and saw how different it was from Camp Wingo, I broke out crying. You know, I'm like nine, ten years old, and but by the end of that summer, I loved Camp Wabisa. Even though when we played a baseball team that had kids, guys that looked like gorillas, two years older than I, (laughs) and I was the pitcher, and I remember, whack, whack. I mean, I walked out there, I'm going to mow these guys down, and they hit everything. And, you know, I was just destroyed. I was, you know, ready to leave the planet. But it says a lot about uh, what we're like as kids when we get to a situation and it's it's the people it's the fellow kids that make it or break it for us i mean you said the second camp uh wabisa didn't have the facilities that wingo had but it had something more it had friends and kids that you could get along with well i think it taught me i think what i learned from that experience i think it was germinating before because i've never been i think everybody carries prejudice to some extent but some of us carry very little and what that taught me was to accept all people, that everybody had something to offer, even the guys that were whacking me around on the baseball field. <laughs> <laughs> Tips on hitting they could offer, probably. And um, so that um, I remember the first day I was there, um, the kid in the next bunk started to talk to me, and he mentioned Mozart. And little did I know that Mozart would become a central figure in my life because of my love of music and so forth. But, um, you know, I entered into conversation with him, and one thing led to another. Now, the main meal at Wabisa was hot dogs uh, in uh, s- smothered with baked beans <laughs> or bug juice, which was some sort of a flavored drink. I mean, they did things on the— On the, on the cheap. On the cheap, right. Yeah. And there was another thing was uh, corn on the cob— slathered with peanut butter. But Max was an unbelievable guy. He used to be that. He used to put on shows like Houdini where he would go down in Boston Harbor and he supposedly he was locked in, but escape artist. Tricky maneuver he wasn't, but he could hold his breath longer than the usual three minutes. And everybody thought he'd be dead, but he would pop up after five minutes. Now Max ran the ran the camp and he was of he'd take us fishing off in Marblehead where I caught flounder and stuff like that. And, you know, Wabisa turned out to be a growth experience because, you know, I learned I learned about the variances among people, and that, that's a good lesson. And you were lucky, too, because um, in those days, particularly, it was, I think, much more, much less diversity in each and every neighborhood, right? I mean, the Jews were in one section, the Italians in another or in another city. So it was almost forcing you to realize distinctions and realize people are all the same deep down. That's a great experience. I mean, I I had a similar experience in camp 
one-year uh, sleepaway camp, meeting kids from Connecticut and other states like New York and, and just hearing different accents. I mean, I was always like you. I was, I was homegrown from Boston. So uh, those experiences you never forget. They, they stay with you. Do you have any friends, and you mentioned Yale, but do you have, uh, Yale Altman, do you have other friends from that era, maybe they're here, maybe they're not, who became lifelong friends? Yeah, I think that uh, Yale certainly did. Mm -hmm. Um, From grammar school uh, at devotion school, and that would be up until the eighth grade, um, yeah, there was Alan Rothstein, who became a psychiatrist, who was a very close friend, uh, who passed away about five years ago. His sons have both become, and they're good friends. His sons are... Stephen used to be the head of Perkins Institute. Oh, yeah. And uh, the other son, Peter, is uh, very foremost in environmental studies. And, you know, it's hard to believe those kids that I knew as infants are in their close to 70 now. Alan's wife I'm still friendly with. She's not well, Natalie. She was three years behind me. There was uh, a really romantic interest, uh, Carla Lothrop, whose father was uh, ran the Community Church of Boston, which was thought to be left-wing, and he used to have a lot of left-wing intellectuals come and speak on Sunday mornings. Carla was absolutely, I I say this with all deference to Lois, who was 12 at the time, but Carla was everybody's wish. The go-to girl. Oh, and she, and she was she was totally beautiful. Yeah, and she's I still communicate with her all, and um, so Alan and Natalie invited me one day. They said we want you to meet somebody that you th- uh, we we think the two of you would get along. So I said, oh, okay, sure. She well, meet us on William Street in Brookline, where Carla lives. Carla was very friendly with Natalie. Um, they were three years behind in the same class with Mike Dukakis at Brookline High School. Mm. And uh, so I walked over there, and uh, and I, I'm confronted with Carla, and I'm saying to myself, oh, my God, look at this woman. And she was 18, and I was 21. I was just about to go into the Air Force. Well, we clicked right away, and it was that was a romance. Um, and uh, later at, 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 the, at a reunion of our class in 2007, there's a guy named Don Gidden who was – in my class at Brookline High School, who told a story when he got I'm, both of us were speaking at this reunion. I, because I gave a copy of my first book, Voices of Brookline, to all my classmates who attended that that reunion, and Don, because he was the man about town uh, in the high school, and he used to and we were friends in high school. He used to kid me. I don't know, Larry. I said maybe I'm going to make you a, a member of the inner circle. <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, yeah, Don, uh, the inner circle. And, uh, but anyway, uh, he became very well known as a, uh, at Harvard, if you look him up, G-I-D-D-O-N, he became extremely well known uh, as uh, a, an inquirer into facial expressions and teeth and how it affects mm-hmm. our perception of other people. Mm-hmm. And Don is still around. I think that he's he's not particularly well these days. He's dividing his time between his home in western Massachusetts near Tanglewood and Sarasota. But he got up and he talked about a number of things. And then he said, and he mentioned Carla. Now, he and I talked about women, but we had never talked about Carla <laughs> because I, you know, I didn't know her in high school. But he, as a senior in high school, spotted her as a freshman and said, 
well, I'd like to know that guy. Said, but, but and he tells the story. He says, but I never got to know Carl. I, I, you know, I never introduced to him. So I said to myself, hey, this is a way to get back at Dawn because of this this bull about the inner circle. Yes. <laughs> so when I got up, I very carefully told the story. I said, you know, Don, you mentioned Carla Lothar. As a matter of fact, I knew Carla. I mean, I, I didn't meet her in high school, but I met her later. And um, just before I went in the Air Force, and so that I left no doubt about the warmth of the relationship between us without, you know, being off base in any way. So that... Uh, that was fun. I mean, I'm going from this is my style, Jordan. I go from one thing to another. <laughs> I don't. Even, I mean, you ask me one question, I answer another. I mean, yeah. But but, but I got to tell you that that was that was podcast gold, the Carla story. So don't stop. Whatever you're doing, don't stop. Well, you know, Carla was. Uh, so anyway, what ha- This is funny. When I came back, you know, distance uh, contrary to some. Maxims about distance does not necessarily make the heart grow fonder. And I was I was pretty immature at that time. I guess I got envious of, I don't know. But, but anyway, we broke up after maybe a year and a half, but remained friendly. I took her to a party one night, and she met the guy that she married, a lawyer. He was studying at BU. And they got married and moved out to Seattle, where uh, I guess the law firm he was interested in serviced... Uh, Boeing at the time, I guess mm-hmm. it was. and uh, But anyway, they divorced. He died of a heart attack after they got divorced. She had two daughters. She married her high school sweetheart, which came before me, and they moved to Wollaston. But then he died, uh, and so she moved up to Maine, where her father used to take them every summer to uh, one of the towns on the shore in Maine. And, and then she moved back to be near her children on the West Coast. Well, from time to time, we would we would be in touch. And um, Collar always needed to, needed, but she wanted to have a man in her life. So about four years ago, when she was still living in Maine, she, uh, I, she met at Virginia's, which is that little store near where my office was on Cypress Street. Oh, yeah. Okay, I know where that is. Yeah, and I bought a whole bunch of pastries, and she came with her her friend at the time, who was a very nice guy. And she had told him all about her previous life and relationship with me and her husbands and all the rest of that stuff. And, you know, we had a nice time renewing old times. After that, she fell and broke her pelvis, and that was very painful for her. But now um, we keep in touch, and while I was doing my memoir, I told her that I was writing up the story about (laughs) Don Don Giddon. And uh, so we had some fun. She, I said, do you have any pictures of you as you look back in your early 20s and stuff like that? So she sent me some pictures for the memoir. And uh, so we've, we've stayed friendly over the years. I don't, know, I don't know what it means, Jordan, but for whatever reason, the, the, the women that I had romantic relationships early in my life, they were, they're all still there. That little... Let's talk about Mickey. What's Mickey's story? 
Well, Mickey was over at uh, Camp Alcrest. He was another guy that I knew over there, not as well as the other fellows, but but Mickey was a uh, he turned out to be a very fine lawyer in the movie business, and uh, he's now retired. But uh, this has to do with friendship uh, in his later life. Um, you know, at Camp Alcrest, what he did was he sort of uh, prepped me to face uh, Yale Oldman's fastball in, in an intra-squad game, and told me I could hit Yale, even though I was afraid of Yale because he was kind of wild. And uh, but then I got up and uh, by God, uh, by the time I got up to the plate, Mickey had me feeling as though I was Ted Williams. So the first time up, I rifled one over Yale's shoulder into center field. And later I got a blooper and I think he gave up three hits in the whole game. So that was good. But Mickey told me a story when I spoke to him years later, just recently, about uh, his camp years and all the guys he was friendly with. He was a bit younger than I uh, was or I am. And he said that uh, a guy named Wilson, who was one of his bunkmates, uh, wanted to get together with the guys from camp. They had all lost touch with each other. And uh, he um, said that, uh, I'll get in touch with them, and maybe we can all get together again. Well, to make a long story short, and this is before the days of the Internet, this guy Wilson, I forget his first name, didn't have the advantage of uh, doing that in ma and mass. He had a right to each person, but they all got together, about I don't know, fifteen or twenty of them, and they had such a great time. I think at uh, Wilson's house down in Cape Cod, that they kept doing it for years and years, mm. and they found that th- that their friendships when they were fifteen held. When they reunited like thirty-five, forty years later, at age fifty, and that went on for like twenty years. And I think that uh, it's apropos of the main theme of my memoir about friendship because um, I think I told you one time, Jordan, maybe the previous time we met, that I don't let old people that are old friends uh, go out of my life so easily, even though they may not be bosom buddies or soulmates. Mm. They were part of my life and part of growing up and part of my development that led me to be the person I am today which is the same person but uh, you know but, but I think people do develop and become more mature mm. which is another word I use maturity so that uh, I um, I think that it's it's a good thing to keep in touch with people and not lose touch and this is a really great story of that happening and these people reuniting and becoming lifelong friends. This has been a life lived backwards, one man's life. The accompanying podcast to Larry Ruttman's memoir, A Life Lived Backwards, an existential triad of friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation. You can subscribe and download this podcast, available on all podcast platforms. For information on Larry, his books, lectures, and much more, visit the website LarryRuttman.com. Also check out the extensive Larry Ruttman page on Wikipedia. This is Jordan Rich inviting you to join us again next time as Larry shares more stories about friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation on A Life Lived Backwards, One Man's Life.